Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, or actually good afternoon, Mo. And uh, it's been a while since we've had an Ortho Joe re- recording, and I actually it's the afternoon here, so I don't I don't need my coffee. But <laughs> and I think you've been traveling, so you, yeah. unless you you brought your cup. No, which... I just but I've got some. Bre- I'm going to get some brewing very shortly. I'm going to take the whole thing, just the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, when you get these 5 a.m. morning flights or you got to get up early and you know how yeah. it is. Yeah, you've traveled a lot. You know the story. Yeah, well, I also know that you've been been <laughs> traveling around the world lately. And Yeah, battery's near empty. I just try to refill it up a bit. That's all. Yeah, climbing climbing mountains in Borneo <laughs> and some, some such things like that. And... Being dragged up mountains in Borneo. I should say <laughs> climbing is the opposite. Yes, but anyway, there, and there's no chairlifts up to 4,000 meters. I wish there Unbelievable. were. I, yeah. Unbelievable. You'd think there'd at least be a, a total or something, but I know. Anyway, I know. So it's time for us to dig back into our respective publications and just talk about what's new and fresh. So I'm actually going to defer to you and let you uh, go first. I think you've got a couple slides to show, and yeah, I, think I do. It relates to the OTA meeting that we did. right, right. So I mean. For those who didn't get the uh, opportunity to attend a very large uh, meeting, the Orthopedic Trauma Association uh, this year, it was in Florida. And, uh, you know, there were some pretty important papers, trials that came out. And I'm going to focus on a couple. I mean, there's lots that we could talk about, but there's a couple of issues that I thought were really relevant uh, to the practice of trauma and ortho evidence. If I can just do a quick slide share, put together what we call the highlights of this particular meeting, talking about particularly some of the randomized trials. Now, I'm not going to only show you randomized trials, Mark, but I do want to get some of your thoughts on this. And you know, I suspect some of our listeners will also have some interest in, in the topic area. So this is uh, an insight that's come out. We have a part two coming out this Saturday as well. But let's take a look, if we could, just going to the first slide. There was a couple of real interesting papers on trauma antisepsis and so much around, and I think you could generalize it to antisepsis in general, but one big issue has been lots and lots of fundamental studies in the past have often used, you know, various different agents, antiseptic agents, and trying to figure out, well, which ones do we use? We have open fractures, we have contaminated bone, what do we do? And there's been, you know, providine-based stuff, there's chlorhexidine, there's been, you know, alcohol, non-alcohol-based, all sorts of approaches. And for the most part, there has been a general sense that in open fractures, you want to avoid alcohol, uh, you want to keep it out of the wound, and therefore the aqueous-based chlorhexidine irrigation systems typically work the best. And so, you know, when they put in this particular uh, study, it was a basic science study, chlorhexidine treatment achieved complete disinfection of a grossly contaminated cortical segment without affecting its mechanical properties. That paper was interesting to me. But as you and I both know, there's been a lot of stories around fundamental science stuff not always working out when you actually, you know, do the trials in patients. So interesting trial comes out. This was a group that was also published, and there's an ACE report associated with this in OrthoEvidence, published simultaneously in The Lancet, a randomized trial of 1,640 patients. And this was run by um, a number of investigators. The presenter of this one was Gerard Slobogin um, of um, Baltimore Shock Trauma specifically, but the University of Maryland. And they asked a simple question, you know, there's lots of 
evidence in the surgical literature to suggest chlorhexidine should be our treatment. Abdominal surgery primarily. If correct, correct, right. correct. But what about aqueous, aqueous now, not alcohol-based, providiodine or, or, or povidone iodine? What is the potential um, benefit of this? And, you know, is there any value to even considering it? So that was their hypothesis um, around, well, what is going to be the answer? Well, as you can imagine, as a lot of large trials do, it, it suggested they both work equally well. If one can argue, well, there was no difference between the two, but functionally, the point here is you can use either. And the statement here is very interesting to me because when you get rid of the alcohol, because a lot of the iodine-based products are alcohol-based, and you almost wonder if the active uh, engaging ingredient that's doing a lot of the good in other areas is the alcohol-based uh, you know, products, because when you take away the alcohol, they both perform pretty well. Um, so there's that point. Now, one thing you will remember is many years prior, we had had the same situation around irrigating wounds. And we found that actually saline works better than soap, but we didn't test iodine and we didn't test chlorhexidine, for example. So I guess my broader question to pause here for a moment is, does all this make sense to you at this point? I mean, you know, should we basically at this point consider this topic done? Or are there other uh, areas of nuance that we should be considering when looking at this data and applying it to our patients? Yeah, I guess my impression, uh, based on my knowledge of, of this series of trials, is that, yes, I, I think we're done. I would say with a high degree of confidence that the, the flow trial definitely answered the questions of low pressure versus high pressure and answered the question of soap versus saline. Uh, and in the Lancet trial just published, I think the answer is clear that either of these PrEP solutions are uh, adequate uh, and equally efficacious. But the real issue is that I think all of these centers involved in these trials are, are highly experienced trauma centers with highly experienced surgeons. And as you and I have been teaching for decades, what really matters in open fracture management is the quality of the debridement. So I suppose you could propose a trial where the debridements weren't uh, top notch and see if these two preps made a difference. But I think that would really be an ethical uh, issue that would be it would be hard to get get by a uh, an IRB, uh, and probably many would not agree to participate, patients and surgeons. So I I, I would say the I think the answers are in for these two particular questions. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the mm -hmm. one thing I will say is that at the meeting, um, the, this investigator group, the Prepit investigator, which is a large group of investigators uh, through multiple institutions and multiple, as you said, institutions with quite a bit of experience, said that they have one more data set that is uh, closing out, which is the alcohol-based use of oh. chlorhexidine and providine. So that's the only thing that's the unknown, uh, but that's enclosed in open fractures because in open fractures, again, the issue of alcohol in a wound is particularly, you know, it's it's the... It's the, it's the one area that no one has really ventured to even test because of black box warnings around alcohol and open yeah. wounds. Cytotoxic, so, desiccating, all those problems. Yeah. That's correct. So I think yeah. that's but the only thing that I've heard them say is left to discuss. And But you're right. I think your point's taken. These trials will hopefully uh, conclude this debate and allow mm -hmm. us to spend resources in, in other areas that require that energy and time. I will, if I could also, sorry, I didn't want to yeah. cut you off. You're going yeah. to say something. No, no, go ahead. Okay. I was going to get one other quick one in because I think it's an important one that is near and dear to your heart. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Trauma hip. So yeah. 
how many times, and this is a case series, and you know, we've talked lots about the value of case series. This is one where I thought it was a particularly valuable in that what this did, and you know, it's it's it fundamentally, and I've looked, I've looked just at the percentage of major complication is really what the point here is to be saying, is that major complications after non-displaced femoral neck fractures, in this case, valgus impacted, a study of 207 patients that was a, a group that, that was out of, um, out of South Carolina basically presenting this work, talked about the value of a case series, Mark, in that you can identify real problems and these problems can then come up with, well, what would be the potential solutions? But if you look at major complications, they're anywhere from 15 to 20% following what we would consider standard of care being internal fixation. And it didn't appear that there was any one protective uh, approach to this. The thing I would also say to you is that they make a point at the end of saying, well, maybe we should be thinking of primary arthroplasty in a select patient's in this group to reduce the risk of reoperation. So they're saying, you know, one in five patients, maybe there is another reason to do something. And if you recall, our own yeah, work right? from the face mm-hmm. suggested that, you know, listen, femoral neck shortening is not benign and that even the operatively treated fractures that are the undisplaced, mm-hmm. we see a third of them go on to shortening and that shortening can lead to, you know, decreased gait velocity, impaired gait symmetry, uh, and ultimately, that median shortening can be up to 10 millimeters. So yeah. I wanted to get your take, if I could, on, you know, are we heading in the right direction? And, you know, with Faith, we we did talk a, a lot about internal fixation uh, options. But what right. about for the undisplaced fractures, uh, arthroplasty options? Yeah, that that seems, you know, at first at first glance, that seems to be an outrageous suggestion. And uh, your original question is, what's the value of uh, cohort studies? And Cohort studies, I think, are really good for framing a question, but they really have to be ideally prospective, and the the adjudication of the of the complications really should be done in a blinded manner in order to make sure we're not just yeah. receiving a, a group of investigators bias on a on a topic. Absolutely. And I honestly don't know this particular cohort study well enough to know whether it yeah. was done with blinded evaluation of outcomes and all the things yeah. that we know. Are important yep. for a well-done prospective cohort study. Right. Um, so, boy, I, I could be convinced. Uh, you know, if if it was really, really well done, that there might be a question there. But it just at face value, a non-displaced fracture, or certainly an impacted fracture without any significant angulation, less than ten degrees, that that just that seems aggressive. Um, oh no! At, at first and that, right. And I think that's the point. Right. Is that we're starting to see we're starting to see this this data come out. And you're right. I fully agree with you that, you know, one case series doesn't make a whole program of research, but at least it starts getting us thinking about, well, maybe this debate should be had. And, you know, when you talk about major complications, we're talking at least the way they've described it as complications just as secondary procedures. Now, who knows why they went on secondary procedures? There's a whole bunch of bias associated with why someone gets onto it, depending on who the individuals are. But my perception here is that as this discussion uh, starts uh, being had, we're going to start seeing more and more insights. And maybe you're right. Maybe there will be some early pilot work coming out from investigators that might even consider randomizing. And then we'll see you know, what, what, what comes of this. The truth of the matter is that this debate is far from over. And if anything, it looks like it's just getting started. Yeah. Well, it's been going on since 1922 yeah. um, when uh, <laughs> I think it was Kellogg Speed said, we enter the world under the brim of the pelvis and we exit through the neck of the femur. 
Oh. Um, yeah, it, there, there's much more to be done, even though I have spent uh, 35, 40 years looking at it, and you uh, 25, 30 years looking at it, and still more work to do. To do. We, we yeah, won't it, be unemployed uh, over no. this question. It is still an unsolved fracture after all these years, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, from the journal side, I'm very pleased to have received my print copy of the symposium that we did a year ago uh, on the use of administrative data sets and, uh, and registries in orthopedics. And uh, it's, it's free uh, online to anybody. Uh, it's available. And it's a series of uh, 10 publications that came out of this meeting which was held in Chicago, and it was uh, supported by uh, Dan Barry and Dave Llewellyn, who have a P32 grant with the NIH uh, on uh, optimum uh, studies of in arthroplasty, as well as the journal, as well as Orthopedic Research and Education Foundation. And it brought together about 40 experts uh, on this uh, topic. And there, there, uh, there's an editorial which we did, uh, John Callahan, the uh, editor emeritus from Journal of Arthroplasty also participated in the organization. And it was really, really uh, very worthwhile. And we at the journal receive a lot of submissions from these administrative databases, as well as the joint registries. And I would uh, urge anybody who's considering doing this kind of work to use this tool to understand what the limitations of the various databases are, are out there. Uh, and it covers, um, you know, the, the the national CMS databases to the the proprietary insurance company databases like Pearl Diver, et cetera. What are the limitations? Pointing out such important things that CPT codes, which are used for analysis, are not really specific uh, for something as simple as a primary total knee arthroplasty, that there are other diagnoses that can lead to different types of outcomes that are mixed into that same CPT code, um, and I'm I'm hopeful that this will be used uh, by researchers who are considering using these administrative data sets uh, so that they they don't waste a lot of time uh, and that they focus their questions within the constraints of the the database. There's also uh, a couple of manuscripts on the international joint registries. So what what's contained in the various registries in the Nordic registries in Australia. Uh, and how they can be optimized. And there's a move now to do nested trials within these joint registries. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that potential, um, but it, listening to that presentation, it, it seems like there's something there. Do you have any thoughts about that? Listen, I, I mean, you know, I think we, are, as we've always talked about, is conducting research is really, really expensive. And also, in some case, depending on the project, can be quite inefficient because it's time, right? Time is money. And you know, if you're able to collect data in a way that you can have patients' data being collected and collected through registry, registry data sets, it, it is dramatically reduces costs, but more importantly, also improves the efficiency with which you can collect this information. So I would say that it is one of those innovations that we should be really, really stress testing and using. And hopefully we're gonna start seeing more and more examples of this as we go forward. It's one yeah. thing to start presenting the idea, but it's one thing for us to really be pushing this. And I think it's a great, great uh, advance for us uh, in terms of cost savings as well. Yeah, good. And then, and the networks are already built. So it's not like yeah. you have to recruit centers. So 
Absolutely. Yeah, there, there's a real sense of optimism surrounding this. The last article in this uh, compendium from, from this uh, symposium is about using natural language processing to pull data uh, out of uh, uh, large databases as well as electronic health records. And it's from the Mayo Clinic where there's real expertise in NLP. Uh, and I've always, I've always felt that there's just uh, the potential there of being able to have intelligent uh, computer-based solutions to pull data out of the electronic health record w- had just untapped potential. And I know you and OrthoEvidence have been working on this. Uh, and what, what is your yeah. sense about how close we are to that reality? Well, I, I would say that there's so many people working on it, which means we're getting closer and closer. Um, it's just real energy and time and money. I mean, it always goes back to that. So it's going to be the large entities, the massive data entities, the Googles of the world, mm. you know, so, so to speak, that are going to be pushing these envelopes simply because, you know, the value is immense. I mean, the amount of time it takes to be able to take a document and have humans scan it for what's important. Imagine if you're able to teach a system to be able to scan information and pull out the salient summary points or the salient information that can immediately be put into a system. My goodness. I mean, you know, the, the, the opportunities are quite endless from that. And I think that is the race is the race to getting uh, in that direction and good, good on the group at the Mayo and others that are uh, pushing this, you know, field forward. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot here. It's kind of in closing of our discussion today. Would you say we're five years off? Are we 10 years off? I, I know it's like asking you if the Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup, but um... <laughs> there there are many skeletons, you know, with <laughs> waving flags waiting for the Leafs to win their thing. So that's I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, um, but I would say it's not imminent, um, but it's quite probable within the next decade. I mean, you know, in decade is I'm I'm really giving you a very long confidence yeah. interval. Uh, the hope is that it happens in you know in the next five to ten years. It, it, funny like you'd think that we'd be right at the cusp of it because we're you know we're at self-driving cars we're at all kinds of things we're at hyperloops but you know the challenge is is that it is really really moving into the robotic age and moving into this artificial intelligence age is you know there's a lot of low-hanging fruit everyone jumps on it but the real complex problems are still deep 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 uh in terms of getting people to you know move them in a direction that's meaningful so yeah. I, I would hope in the next five years, but I think realistic within the next 10. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take that as a, as a solid answer. I don't think you're waffling <laughs> too much there. No, so, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know you've got other things to do this mm. afternoon and uh, I hope that your tea oh. is uh, of the, the right consistency, not, not too light it's, and not too strong. And it is currently water, but it will transform. <laughs> I am going to immediately move in that direction after this. Yeah. Well, ha- have a good rest okay. of your week and I'll you talk too. to you next week. Excellent. Chat soon. Bye.